Brethren of the priesthood, I have in mind saying a few things tonight about courage. There are different kinds of courage, they say, physical courage and moral courage. It's my experience, however, that one with moral courage, that is one who is true to himself, also has physical courage. The great Shakespeare, in his play, Hamlet, has his, his character, Polonius, instruct his son on many aspects of his conduct. And he concludes a rather long statement with this statement, this, above all, to thine own self be true, and it must follow as the day, the night, night the day, thou canst not then be false to any man. We all have a conscience, and a conscience is the root of moral courage. A truly brave person will always obey his conscience. To know what's right and not do it is cowardice. In our church literature, we find many examples of high courage. Consider, for example, a moment the prophet Joseph Smith. When he told the Protestant ministers in his area about his first vision, he was met with scorn and ridicule. It was, he said, nevertheless a fact that I had beheld a vision, I had actually seen a light, and in the midst of that light I saw two personages, and they did, in reality, speak to me. And though I was hated and persecuted for saying that I had seen a vision, yet it was true. And while they were persecuting me, reviling me, and speaking all manner of evil against me falsely for so saying, I was led to say in my heart, why persecute me for telling the truth? I've actually seen a vision, and who am I that I can withstand God? Or why does the world think it can make me deny what I have actually seen? For I had seen a vision, I knew it, and I knew that God knew it, and I could not deny it. The prophet was true to himself not only in his youth, but throughout his life. Eighteen years after the first vision, the prophet and others had been penned up in a cold, open, unfinished courthouse for several weeks. In one of those tedious nights, writes Parley P. Pratt, we had lain as if in sleep till the hour of midnight had passed, and our ears and hearts had been pained while we had listened for hours to obscene jests and horrid oaths the dreadful blasphemies and filthy language of our guards. I had listened till I came so dis disgusted, shocked, horrified, and so filled with the spirit of indignant justice that I could scarcely refrain from rising upon my feet and rebuking the guards, but had said nothing to Joseph or anyone else, although I lay next to him and knew that he was awake. On a sudden he rose to his feet and spoke in a voice of thunder, 
or as the roaring lion, uttering as near as I can recollect the words, Silence, ye fiends of the infernal pit. In the name of Jesus Christ, I rebuke you and command you to be still. I will not live another minute and hear such language. Cease such talk, or you or I die this instant. He ceased to speak. He stood erect in terrible majesty, chained and without a weapon, calm, unruffled, and dignified as an angel. He looked upon the quailing guards, whose weapons were lowered or dropped to the ground, whose knees smote together, and who, shrinking into a corner or crouching at his feet, begged his pardon and remained quiet till the change of guards. I have seen ministers of justice, continued Parley, clothed in magisterial robes and criminals arraigned before them while life was suspended on a breath in the courts of England. I have witnessed the Congress in solemn session to give laws to nations. I have tried to conceive of kings, of royal courts, of thrones and crowns, and of emperors assembled to decide the fate of kingdoms. But dignity and majesty have I seen by but once, as it stood in chains at midnight in a dungeon in, a, in an obscure village in Missouri. Certainly the prophet demonstrated both moral and physical courage. His being true to himself and his maker eventually cost him his life. It also assured him of eternal life and exaltation. In the Book of Mormon, we learn of Nephi's great courage. You will recall that while Lehi and his family were encamped in the valley of Lemuel, the Lord instructed him to send his son back to Jerusalem to obtain from Laban the plates, <coughs> the records. Laman and Lemuel murmured that it was a hard thing. But Nephi, their younger brother, said, I will go and do the thing which the Lord hath commanded. For I know that the Lord giveth no commandment unto the children of men, save he shall prepare a way that they may accomplish the thing which he commandeth them. Well, they went up to Jerusalem. They cast lots. Laman went in. Laban accused him of being a robber and threatened him to kill him. Then he came back to his brothers without the plates. He knew he couldn't get them, and he proved it. He said they were going to return to their father. But this young man, Nephi, said, As the Lord liveth, and as we live, we will not go down unto, into our father in the wilderness until we have accomplished the thing which the Lord hath commanded us. They then, at Nephi's urging, went to the land of their inheritance got their gold and silver and other precious things and tried to buy the records from, from Laban. And he lusted after their riches, and he sent his servants to take them. And they fled for their lives some distance into the wilderness and hid in the cavity of a rock. And there they did smite Nephi and Sam with a rod, and an angel came and rebuked them. And after the angel left, Laman and Lemuel murmured, and that it was impossible for them to get the plates, that Laban was a mighty man and could command 50 
Yea, he can slay fifty, they said to Nephi. But Nephi said, The Lord is mightier than all the earth. Then why not mightier than Laban and his fifty? Yea, or even than his tens of thousands. They then followed Nephi back to Jerusalem. Nephi went in, and he came out with the plates. Great was the faith and the courage of Nephi. At the time Lehi and his family left Jerusalem, there was living in, a, in, in the area another young man by the name of Daniel, who was to demonstrate great courage during his life. In 597 B.C., which was just three years after Lehi left, Daniel was carried into Babylon captive by Nebuchadnezzar. He began to demonstrate his courage soon after he got there when he and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego refused to defile themselves with the king's meat and wine. That is, they refused to break the word of wisdom as observed by his people at that time, even though the king had commanded that they do so. He evidenced outstanding courage when, in interpreting the king's dream, he told the old king that it was a decree of the Most High that he, Nebuchadnezzar, would be driven from men and live with the beasts of the field, eating grass as oxen for seven years, and said, quote, till thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of man and giveth it to whomsoever he will. And then he counseled the king to break off thy sins and iniquities. Can you imagine the courage that it took for a captive slave to talk like that to the king, whose dominion, the record said, reached to the ends of the earth? Well, that's what he did, and strange it may seem, he outlived the old king. When this same Daniel was summoned to Belshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar's successor, to interpret the strange handwriting the king had seen on the wall, he showed similar courage. He told Belshazzar that the writing said, quote, God hath numbered thy kingdom and finished it. Thou art weighed in the balance and art found wanting. Thy kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Daniel not only read the message, but before he did, he had the courage to tell Belshazzar that he had brought ju this judgment upon himself by his own transgressions. He further told him that one of his sins was the desecration of the vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had brought from the temple in Jerusalem, and that another was lifting himself up against the Lord of heaven. The record says that that same night, Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, was slain. Darius, the Median, who took over the kingdom, divided it into 20, 120 provinces, and he put a prince over each of the provinces, and over the princes he placed three presidents, of whom Daniel was the first. In this position, Daniel had occasion to demonstrate his courage in the face of great danger. The other presidents and princes to, sought to find occasion against Daniel. They were jealous of him, and they couldn't find anything against him. And then they said, 
we shall not find any occasion against this man Daniel except we find it against him concerning the law of his God. Then these presidents and princes assembled themselves together to the king and induced him to make a firm decree that, whatever, that whoever shall ask a petition of God or man for thirty days, save thee, O king, he shall be cast into the lion's den. Now when Daniel learned about that, he went immediately to his house, and his windows were open so that they could look in. And in his chamber he knelt toward Jerusalem. He kneeled down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he did aforetime. I suppose that no one will question the fact that in thus being true to himself and his God, Daniel demonstrated great faith and courage. Well, I don't need to read the rest. You know what follows. You know that he was cast in to the lion's den because the king couldn't change the law of the Medes and Persians, and that the Lord actually closed the mouths of the lions to save Daniel. Well, now, not all acts of courage bring such spectacular rewards, but all of them do bring peace and contentment, just as cowardice is the end, all, in the end, always brings regret and remorse. I know that from my own experience. I remember when I was a boy of 15, when we had been, when we had been expelled from Mexico in the, in the Revolution, my folks went over to Los Angeles from El Paso, Texas, and I got a job over there in a bunch of Mormon haters. And I didn't uh, tell them that I was a Mormon. And a few days, uh, sometime after that, President Joseph F. Smith came to Los Angeles and had dinner with my parents, a very humble dinner. I can remember that it was very scant. And he put his hand on my head, and he said, My boy, don't ever be ashamed that you're a Mormon. You know, I worried about that all my days, that I didn't have the courage to stand up to those ribald man that I was with yeah, on that occasion. I remember another occasion when I was in Australia on a mission. I went up to, uh, to visit the Janolan Caves, very wonderful, uh, spectacular caves, and as we walked through them, the guide said, if some of you will get out and stand on that rock over there and sing a song. Uh, it will demonstrate the capacity uh, of this cave. Well, the Spirit said to me, go over there and sing, Oh, my Father. And I hesitated. <laughs> and the crowd walked on, and I lost the opportunity. And I never felt good about that. The only thing that ever made me feel kind of good, uh, like the Lord had forgiven me, was one time I heard President McKay say, uh, when he, I was talking to him, he said, I was inspired one time to do a certain thing in the mission field, and I didn't do it. And he said, I've always been sorry of it since. He said, never, never fail to respond 
to the whisperings of the Spirit. Live so you can get it and then have the courage to do it. Well, now, as priesthood bearers, let us resolve, brethren, all of us, both young and old, to develop the courage to be true to ourselves and to our Maker in all things in our lives. God bless us to that end, I pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. My beloved brethren, it's always a real privilege, blessing, and inspiration for me to look into the faces of the priesthood holders in this great tabernacle and think of the hundreds of thousands that are listening in by closed circuit in the many groups in different parts of the world. How glorious to belong to the Church of Jesus Christ and to hold the priesthood of God and be allowed to act in His name. When we think of the thousands of priesthood holders throughout the world, it gives us great encouragement, and we feel to praise the Lord. As we attended the area conferences in South America, we gave thanks to the Lord as we saw in Buenos Aires over 1,300 in attendance at the Melchizedek Priesthood Leadership Meeting. Representatives from Argentina, Uruguay, Paraguay, and Chile. At the general conference sessions, there were assembled over 5,500 in Brazil and over 10,000 in Argentina. It is evident that the work of the Lord is going forward and that the kingdom is being built up throughout the world. The members were thrilled and most excited and enthusiastic and appreciative when the President announced that we would have a temple in San Paulo. Both in Brazil and Argentina, the members pledged their full support. It is most encouraging and actually is a testimony of the truthfulness of the gospel to see the changes in the lives of the people who accept the gospel and live according to its teachings and to hear their testimonies. Let me now give you a little experience I had in Caracas, Venezuela. As I attended a meeting of the saints and investigators there one evening, the president estimated about 500 people in attendance. As I arose to speak, I asked those who had been baptized in 1974 and 75 to stand. And then in 73, in 72, in 71, in 70, I then asked them to sit down and asked those who had been in the church over five years to stand. Only three stood. And they were visitors. <laughs> This gives you some idea how the work of the Lord is going forward in that area. Now tonight, brethren, I should like to emphasize and, if possible, make everybody realize what a great privilege it is to hold the priesthood and also to help us all to determine the, to honor that priesthood and magnify our callings so that we may be a light unto the world and help build the kingdom of God. And, the same, and at the same time to prepare ourselves for immortality and eternal life. No greater goal could be set. No greater progress could be made. No greater joy and satisfaction could be experienced than to determine that we will accept Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world and live His teachings. There is no doubt in my mind that everybody within the sound of my voice would like more than anything else to prepare himself for eternal life and exaltation and to know that the Lord is pleased with his actions. However, there are many who do not keep this in mind 
and some who are not prepared to put forth the effort to live worthy of these blessings. With this in mind, I should like to say a few words about self-discipline, self-control, self-mastery, which is so important to all of us if we are to accomplish what we set out to do and enjoy the blessings which we so much desire. First, I should like to quote from some of the philosophers. Plato said, First, the first and best victory is to conquer self. To be conquered by self is, of all things, the most shameful and vile. And da Vinci once said, You will never have a greater or lesser dominion than that over yourself. Then he goes on to say, The height of man's success is gauged by his self-mastery, the depth of his failure by his self-abandonment. And this is the law, and this law is the expression of eternal justice. He who cannot establish dominion over himself will have no dominion over others. In other words, he cannot be a worthy father or leader. Solomon, in all his wisdom, made this meaningful statement. He that is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he that ruleth his spirit than he that taketh a city. There are two important elements in self-mastery. The first is to determine your course, or set the sail, so to speak, of moral standards. The other is willpower, or the wind in the sails carrying one forward. As I said before, <coughs> character is determined by the extent to which we can master ourselves toward good ends. It's difficult to say just what builds good character, but we know it when we see it. It always commands our admiration, and the absence of it our pity but it is largely a matter of willpower. I think it was Garrison who said his great, determina great determination when he said, I am in earnest. I will not equivocate. I will not excuse. I will not retreat a single inch, and I will be heard. This should apply to every one of us engaged in the cause of right and truth. Christ probably gave us more definitely and clearly the answer as to how to see, succeed when he said, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there, go, there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. As we think of this, it is so evident that those who keep on the straight and narrow path leading to the, their goals realizing that the straight line is the shortest distance between two points and that detours are very dangerous are those who succeed in life and enjoy self-realization and achievement. This requires self-control and self-discipline. On the other hand, those who feel, fail to keep their goals in mind and fail to discipline themselves find that they are following detours and paths that lead to failure and destruction. There are those who complain that to follow the straight and narrow path requires limitations, restrictions, overcoming and doing without things that are very tempting. We must remember, however, that it guarantees victory and achievement of our goal, which is gained by setting our, our goal and being able to concentrate and follow an undeviating course. Narrow is a very meaningful word. Often people accuse us of being narrow-minded 
if we are following the straight and narrow path, which certainly does require self-restraint and self-denial. We must realize and be prepared to accept the fact that it confines us, restricts us, and limits us in certain areas. But let us fully realize that it does not fetter or shackle mankind. On the contrary, it is the way to emancipation, independence, and liberty. Remember, heights by great men reached and kept were not attained by sudden flight, but they, while their companions slept, were toiling upward in the night. Remember also that nature never pays an unearned account, and she never fails to pay one that has been earned. If you wish to achieve financial success, if you wish to be happy, if you wish to be healthy, if you would be morally clean, if, if you wish to find religious peace of mind, there is only one sure way, and that is the straight and narrow path, the way of honor, the way of industry, of moderation, simplicity, and virtue. If you want to be successful or outstanding in any field of endeavor, it is important that you endeavor to determine while young to be a great boy and not wait to be a, a man to be a great man, and then have the courage and strength and determination to discipline yourself, apply self-control and self-mastery. I have a grandson who is an outstanding badminton player. At 16, is a champion. He has accomplished this by running miles every morning and keeping himself in physical condition. Though he has not neglected his schooling, he has practiced and practiced and practiced and kept the word of wisdom strictly, followed the health principles to the letter, and I honor him for it. You priesthood holders, wherever you may be this evening, should appreciate that you have the great privilege of holding the priesthood and that as you accepted the priesthood, you made a covenant with the Lord that you would honor the priesthood and live worthy of it. It is so important that you keep yourselves clean and pure and, participate, and not participate in any vulgar, or unclean, or unholy practice as, <clears throat> as you go to your Sunday school and sacrament meetings and are permitted to pass the sacrament in memory of the great sacrifice that the Lord made for us. Be sure that you are worthy that your hands are clean and your hearts pure, that you have done nothing during the week that would make you unworthy. As I attended a sacrament meeting the other day, I was so pleased to see that those who administered and passed the sacrament were wearing white shirts and had ties, well-groomed and clean, and during the whole service they were reverent. I complimented the young men and the bishop and told them I was sure the Lord was pleased with the way the sacrament was administered. Sacrament service is most sacred. I wondered if the Lord can be pleased when we fail to show our respect and reverence. Then, too, he cannot be pleased when young men holding the priesthood are doing and saying things during the week which they know are wrong. Several years ago, my oldest grandson, who had been a deacon for a year, came to me and said, Grandpa, I have been a hundred percenter since I was ordained a deacon a year ago. I said, What do you mean by a hundred percenter? Of course, I knew. But he responded, I haven't missed a sacrament meeting, Sunday school, or priesthood meeting since I was ordained a deacon. I congratulated him and said, John, if you will continue to be a hundred percenter until you are old enough to go on a mission, I'll finance your mission. He smiled and said, I'll do it. I thought I was perfectly safe. 
<laughs> but he said about to be a hundred percenter. I remember on two occasions how he disciplined himself in order to accomplish his undertaking. One time his uncle invited him to go for a trip with him and his boys where they would be gone over Sunday. John said, is there any place I can attend my meetings on Sunday? As he was told there was not, he said, no, I can't go. I'm going to be a hundred percenter and therefore sacrificed a lovely trip to the ocean and an island on which they were going to celebrate. Another time, near a weekend, he broke his leg. The first thing he asked his doctor, will I be able to attend church on Sunday? I have to be a hundred percenter. He came, of course, on crutches. When he became 19 years of age, he said, Grandpa, I have been a hundred percenter ever since we made that deal. I was very happy to finance his mission. This achievement, however, has been a great influence in his life. It is not so difficult for him to discipline himself and do those things which are right for him to do and which will bring him success. How important it is that every priesthood holder keep the word of wisdom strictly, that he never tamper with tobacco, tea, coffee, alcohol, beverages, or drugs, that he keep the Sabbath day holy that he is honest and honorable and upright in his dealings, that he disciplines himself in every way to be sure that he is worthy and acceptable to the Lord. Satan is continually at work and in his cunning way tempts us through our appetites and passions and friends to do, do those things which are not right and proper for us to do. Too often, not only our youth, but some of the brethren in high places succumb to temptation. We must be on the job all the time guarding against evil. We must never relax or forget who we are and what we are trying to accomplish. Not long ago, I had the very sad experience of talking to a missionary who, before he was called into the mission field, was guilty of immorality. He did not tell his bishop or his stake president. In fact, he lied about it and went into the mission field guilty of transgression and guilty of lying. He was not able to get the Spirit of the Lord. Finally, he came to his mission president and admitted he's wrong. He was very repentant and prayed that the Lord would forgive him. As he talked to me, he said, I am prepared to be excommunicated or anything else. I just want to get back in good fellowship with the Lord and be forgiven by him. We cannot afford to waver in any way. We should always keep in mind that we are trying to prepare for missions, temple marriages, and activity in the Church and to be examples for good so that others will be influenced by the way we live. So many people say, one cigarette, one cup of tea or coffee, one puff of marijuana won't hurt you, and one drink of alcohol surely can't hurt anybody. I want to emphasize that if you never take the first, you will never take the second. You will never become an alcoholic or an addict. The Lord is interested in every boy wherever he is and in whatever he is doing. We have all been foreordained for some office or some calling or some position and responsibility. President Kimball, when he was a boy, had no idea that he would ever be an apostle. In fact, he said that when he was called as an apostle, he wept and prayed and wept and prayed that he might be worthy. I don't want to embarrass President Kimball, 
but I don't know of a better example any place in the world where a young man through discipline and self-mastery prepared himself so well for the position which the Lord had in mind for him. Now, as the prophet of God, he has asked all of our young men to prepare themselves for missions by studying and keeping themselves clean and pure and worthy and by saving money for his mission. I want to tell all of you young men that if you will do what the president of the Church asks you to do, you will be happy, more successful, and you will accomplish much good and be ready for any call that might come to you from the Lord by those who are in authority. While I was at the area conference in Buenos Aires, I met a young man who was head of the Gillette Razor Company for the whole of South America. He set out as a boy to live the way the Lord wanted him to live, to magnify any office he held in the priesthood. He went from Argentina to the BYU, where he became student body president. From there, he went to work for the Gillette Company in the USA and has just been called to be the head of this company in the whole of South America. He translated for President Kimball in all of his talks while in the area conference. He said to me how honored he was to be able to translate for a prophet. He told me what the gospel meant in his life and how it had prepared him for the work he is now doing. The Lord's always looking for men in whom he can place his full confidence, who can represent him in the mission field, and men who can be trusted in every way and who are prepared to help build his kingdom. He said, This is my work and my glory to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. He is asking us as priesthood holders if we will come and help him spread the gospel and live and help others to live so as to enjoy immortality and eternal life. I wish to bear my witness to you and to the world at this Easter season that Jesus Christ lives and that he is actually the Son of the living God, that he came and gave his life for you and me, that he gave us the plan of life and salvation, which is the gospel we teach in his restored Church, that we are led by a prophet of God, Spencer W. Kimball. May we apply the principles of self-mastery and discipline so as to prove worthy of the many blessings we receive as priesthood holders and walk uprightly before the Lord at all times, I humbly pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. My beloved brethren and sisters everywhere, <clears throat> I invite you to implore the Lord in our behalf while I talk to you a few moments, for the message I have is important to every living soul in the earth. During the current Easter season, much has been said about the resurrection. While it is impossible to grasp the full significance of resurrection, its reality should never be far from our thoughts. Paul, by implication, identified it as the central theme of the gospel of Jesus Christ when to the Corinthians he wrote, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. 
Let us begin our consideration of this great exposition with the phrase, Since by man came death. Since by man. What is man? The question has been repeated through the ages. Job, in his torment, cried, What is man? that thou shouldest magnify him, and that thou shouldest set thine heart upon him, and that thou shouldest visit him every morning and try him every moment. And again, what is man that he should be clean, and he which is born of woman that he should be righteous? The psalmist echoed, What is man that thou art mindful of him? and the Son of Man, that thou visitest him. For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. The scriptural answer to this question comes through firm and clear. Man is a spirit child of God, clothed in the mortal tabernacle of flesh and bones. This is revealed in the record of his creation. The first chapter of Genesis gives an account of the spiritual creation of the earth and everything that was to be placed upon it, including man, whose spirit God created in his own image. In the image of God created him, he, him, male and female, created him, them. And not only man, but every plant of the field before it was in the earth, and every herb of the field before it grew, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was not a man to till the ground. But there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground, and the Lord formed man that is, his physical body, out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. That was his spirit. And man became a living soul. This accords with the modern scripture which affirms that the spirit and the body are the soul of man. Since by man came death, what is death? It is the separation of the body and the spirit. Adam and Eve, when created as living souls, were endowed with the faculty to live forever. They were sinless, pure, and holy, worthy to enjoy, and they did enjoy the society of God, their father. As a matter of fact, he visited them in the Garden of Eden and conversed with and instructed them. This instruction they needed because in their transition from spirits to souls, the memories of their past experiences were blotted out. Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, said the Lord to Adam in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Time will not permit a delineation of the details, but the crucial fact is 
that Adam and Eve, contrary to the instruction, did eat of the forbidden fruit. In doing so, they took into their bodies food, which worked in them such a change that in due time their bodies and their spirits separated. That is to say, their souls died. This penalty for breaking the commandment passed by inheritance to all of Adam's posterity. Thus, by man came death. When death comes, as it does to all men, the body returns to the earth and the spirit returns to the spirit world. Separated from its body by death, the spirit is in the precarious predicament which the prophet Jacob thus described. If the flesh should rise no more, our spirits must become subject to that angel who fell from before the presence of the eternal God and became the devil to rise no more. And our spirits must have become like unto him, and we become devils, angels to a devil, to be shut out from the presence of our God and to remain with the father of lies in misery like unto himself. Redemption from death, that is, resurrection, is therefore imperative to man's future happiness. Spirit and element, inseparably connected, receive a fullness of joy. And when separated, man cannot receive a fullness of joy. Now, God, being omniscient, foresaw this predicament. He knew that death would pass upon all men because of Adam's partaking of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He also knew that for, that for men to suffer forever by reason of death, which they were not responsible for, would be unjust. He therefore provided for the redemption of the soul through Christ's death and resurrection. On this point, he said in a modern revelation, Now verily I say unto you that through the redemption which is made for you is brought to pass the resurrection of the dead. And the spirit and the body is the soul of man and the resurrection from the dead is the redemption of the soul. And the redemption of the soul is through him that quickeneth all things, that is, through Christ. Now, who is Jesus Christ? And how could he bring about resurrection when no other man nor all men put together could do so? The scriptures respond to these questions, they make it clear that the spirit person, Jesus Christ, as are the spirits of all men, is the Son of God, our eternal Father. In this respect, he is like all other men. He differs from all other men, however, by reason of the fact that men's bodies are begotten of mortal men and are therefore subject to the death, being descendants and inheritors from Adam. 
while Christ's physical body was begotten of God, our Heavenly Father, an immortal being, not subject to death. Christ, therefore, inherited from his Father the faculty to live on indefinitely. He had power over life and death, as witness his own declaration to the Pharisees. The good shepherd, he said, giveth his life for the sheep, and I am the good shepherd, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, I lay it down of myself, Since, uh, and I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. Since man, being subject to death, could not raise his body from the grave, Jesus came to earth and voluntarily gave his life to atone for the fall of Adam, thereby implementing the power of resurrection. The first evidence of his victory over the grave was, of course, his own resurrection, concerning the reality of which there is much evidence. He was both seen and heard by Mary. He met the women on their way to tell the disciples about the empty tomb. To them he spoke, and they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. He walked and conversed with the two disciples on the way to Emmaus. He appeared to his apostles twice, once when Thomas was absent and again a week later when he was present. He talked to them, showed them his hands and his feet. At his request, they gave him a piece of broiled fish and of an honeycomb, and he took it and did eat before them. He hosted the seven disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. On one occasion, he was seen by more than 5,000 people at once. He was seen of Cephas, of James, and of Paul. On the Galilean mountain, he commissioned the eleven to teach all nations. Finally, he led them out as far as Bethany, and uh, he lifted up his hands, and while he blessed them, he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. Following his post-resurrection ministry in the land of Jerusalem, he visited and administered among the Nephites in America. Marvelous and inspiring, as is the record of the resurrection of Jesus, of equal significance is the assurance that the power of resurrection which he implemented was to be and is universal. Such is the promise. And Matthew reports that the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. Jesus himself, during his mortal ministry, had said, The hour is coming in which all men who are in their graves shall hear his voice. And shall come forth, they that have done good in the resurrection of the just, and they that have done evil in the resurrection of the unjust. 
During his post-resurrection ministry in America, he emphasized this vital truth of the universal resurrection by directing his Nephite disciples to insert in their records, which they had failed to do, Samuel's prophecy concerning the resurrections of others and its fulfillment. The omitted statement to which he referred was that one of the signs to be given to the Nephites of his crucifixion was that many graves shall be opened and shall yield up many of their dead and many saints shall appear unto them. Now his Nephite disciples said, Yea, Lord, Samuel did so prophesy to thy words, and they were all fulfilled. John the Revelator concludes the account of his vision of the resurrection to occur at the beginning of the millennium, which is not far ahead now, by saying, and they lived, those who came forth in, in the resurrection preceding the millennium, they, they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. At which time, he added, I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. Amulet, speaking to Caesarum, we read this in the Book of Mormon, said, The death of Christ shall loose the bands of this temporal death, that all shall be raised from this temporal death. The spirit and the body shall be reunited again in its perfect form. Both limb and joint joint shall be restored to its proper frame. This resurrection shall come to all, both old and young, both bond and free, both male and female, both the wicked and the righteous. In this manner will the, be fulfilled Paul's declaration, for since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterwards they that are Christ at his coming. Men's, man's soul is thus assured of immortality. Christ has completed the first part of his work and glory, which he declared to Moses was to bring to pass the immortality and the eternal life of man. Great is the depth we owe to our Redeemer for our resurrection. But this is not the final goal. Attaining to immortality is a prerequisite to, but it is not necessarily the same as attaining eternal life. Mortality, immortality, denotes length of life, deathless. Eternal life denotes quality of life, the quality of life God enjoys. There are three kingdoms 
of differing degrees of glory in the world to come, the celestial, which is the lowest, the terrestrial, the middle, and the celestial, the glory enjoyed by deity. Each kingdom of glory is governed by law. Men will be judged in the spirit world and rewarded according to their works. In the resurrection, their bodies will be quickened by the glory of the kingdom, the laws of which they have obeyed during this temporal mortal life. The gospel of Jesus Christ has revealed, as revealed to and taught by the prophets from Adam to the meridian of time, as taught and demonstrated by Jesus during his mortal ministry, and as restored in this the dispensation of the fullness of times, which gospel is today being authoritatively taught and administered throughout the world by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the celestial law as it applies to men, human souls in mortality. Obedience to this law is a prerequisite to resurrection with a celestial body. Great will be the glory of those who attain it, and sad indeed will be those who do not attain it. The prophet Joseph Smith in remarks at a funeral said that the disappointment of hopes and expectations at the resurrection would be indescribably dreadful. Many of these laws have been presented and discussed at this conference, and more will be. May we hearken to and obey them. In conclusion now, I bear my personal witness to the truth of these things which I have uttered. I know by the Spirit of the Holy Ghost that they are true. Jesus lives. He is the Son of God. He came to earth as the only begotten of the Father. He conquered death, raised his own body from the grave, and implemented the power of resurrection for all men. I know that through his suffering in Gethsemane and during his crucifixion, he brought about the means by which, through repentance and obedience, to the laws of his gospel, we may be raised not only to immortality but also to eternal life, which is the greatest of all the gifts of God. To this I bear solemn witness in the name, sacred name of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. Amen.